Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Brooke Williams walked twice into Southern Utah's Mary Jane Wilderness at the beginning of the Trump presidency and four years later at its end. In his new book, Mary Jane Wild, he documents his experience in this magical place, his sense of what happened during the Trump presidency, and why and its possible long-term effects. It's also his story of how walking in the wilderness heals, help him identify, and then adapt to changing modern conditions and understand the role wildness continues to play in the evolution of life. Brooke Williams has spent the last 30 years advocating for wilderness. He's the author of four books, including Open Midnight and The Story of My Heart. And uh, his journalistic pieces have appeared in Outside, Huffington Post, Orion, and Salt Front. He and his wife, Terry Tempest Williams, divide their time between Utah and Wyoming. And he joins us for the Hour at Axe Utah today. Brooke Williams, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate being on your program. It's always good to have you on. Uh, this is a very interesting book, um, Mary Jane Wild uh, Wilderness. Uh, so you're talking about this This place is was somewhat near Castle Valley, your, your home? It is. It's right over the ridge. Um, yeah, there's a big ridge that has Castleton Tower and Perriott Mesa and Adobe Mesa, and then a pass right between those, and there's the Mary Jane Wilderness spread out. Yeah, this is, for people who don't know, this is near Moab, I think? It is maybe 18, 20 miles as the crow flies east of Moab. Yeah. How did you uh, and your wife discover this place? We've we've lived in Castle Valley off and on since 1998, and it's been so great because we can just walk out the door in any direction and be in a wild place with birds and dragonflies and coyotes, and it, it just has been part of the process of getting to know the place. Uh, the other place you live is Jackson Hole? Well, that was a little bit dated. Yeah, we did until 2019. Um, now we spend our time, most of it in Castle Valley, and some of it in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Terry works. Ah, ah there you go, yeah. Well, that's quite the juxtaposition. Uh, exactly uh, the opposite. <laughs> exactly the opposite, yeah. Uh, so I want to, before we get into um, some of the rest of this, I, I want to just uh, talk about some of the basics here. Um, as someone who doesn't get out in the, in the wild uh, anywhere near as much as you do, um, you uh, you open the book by saying, you know, Trump gets elected and you're out in the wilderness, what, just a couple of days later? Yes, I, I think like many people, I, I was totally surprised about um, the outcome of that election. In fact, we were with a group of people from Castle Valley in a big room with a big TV celebrating what we thought was going to be a different outcome. And um, when when the outcome was actually known, I was so surprised and disheartened and worried about the future. And I did the one thing I know I can depend on, which is wander out into the wilderness for a while and see what happens. So uh, you tell your wife, if I'm not back by Saturday, you might call for search. <laughs> but but you knew I might be impossible to find. <laughs> you, you're right. Um, I'm interested in the logistics uh, before we get into you know some of the some of the analogies and 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 uh, etc. Uh, so what you packed light? You said. Yeah, it was. Um, I checked the weather, and it wasn't supposed to be all that cold, and it was supposed to be clear, so I didn't need to take a tent. And I also knew that if I was walking right out of my porch, that if something shifted and it got, you know, gnarly, the weather, or I didn't feel good, I could just come home. So I wasn't going to be that far away. I was far away in terms of, uh, you know, mentally and, and emotionally, but not physically. Um, you say, um, the, just quote from the book here, the most important aspect of my life to date, not counting Terry, my dogs and family, et cetera, is the time I've spent alone in wild solitude. That's been a through line in your life, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think looking back, it, it is, it took me a while to realize how important it was. And now, you know, in the last 15 years or so, I've, I've depended on it for, um, inspiration and to, you know, sort of move beyond tough spots that we all go through. Um, 
I think it's it's magical in that way, and I think it's um, something that humans have been depending on for an awfully long time. Uh, I think it's something that's sort of missing from our culture now. And in fact, uh, so often during the last four years, I've I've heard something or read something that has just made me roll my eyes back in my head because of the absurdity of it. And I've the first thing out of my mouth is usually, well, they don't get out enough. Mm -hmm. What do you think we gain when we get out? I think we gain some connection to our our evolutionary history, for one thing, but mainly um, all the tools that we've ever needed to save ourselves throughout the entire history of our species. I think there's something about, you know, putting one foot in front of the other in a wild place that we're inspired and injected in, in, into some deep, deep past where we've, you know, been pretty successful for the last 200,000 years. Do you think we're moving in the wrong direction? Do you think more of us did access this? Prior, I don't know, going back how many years, and are we heading in the wrong direction with this? Um, I think so, but I feel like part of my job in the world is to at least identify and, and discuss and tell stories about what I think is happening, um, me trying to make sense of this, because it's something I've sort of believed. I know there's a lot of people believe it, but it's, you know, it's hard to make sense of, and it's hard to put... Uh, words and, and definitions to what I'm talking about, but I think I think it's there, and I think if more people spent more time out there, there would be a more of a an idea of this some kind of an essential truth that exists because we've certainly lost our connection with um, truth. Now it's more about belief and how we support that belief as opposed to what is really true or not. I want to return just briefly to logistics. Um, you you said early on your first walk here, uh, you diverted from uh, I think the path you were going to take, um, and you you found a deer uh, path, and you say that it is. So why is that important? Well, I think I mentioned a few times because um, from here I'm at I'm in my house in Castle Valley. From here to the pass is pretty direct, and there's trails that a lot of people use. But once you get over, um, I took a way that there was no trail, and so it's in and out of washes. And you're trying to find I'm trying to find the most direct route from point A to point B, even though I'm not sure what point B actually is. And um, you can get stuck in places because you come to cliffs or drop-offs that you don't want to negotiate, especially all by myself. So you can pretty much depend on if there's a path that more than one or two deer have taken, you have a good idea that it's a good path. So I tend to follow those when, when possible. And that, that serves you well, I guess. Um, generally, if a deer can 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 make a path, you uh, you can follow it. Right, and especially if more than one, and you find what places where the the deer seem to have moved in in mass from one place to another, and um, yeah, they're uh, uh, most of the time really negotiable. I found this very interesting. Uh, at one point, you said you need to slow down, check yourself, and focus on the rules. So your rules are don't do anything you can't reverse, no jumping, and step in the middle of things and not on their edges. Is is this from experience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's from experience and it's from growing old and realizing that, you know, my knees are bad and there's uh, absolutely no reason in the world to jump off something anymore like I might have done 30 years ago. Um, and also, when you're alone... You know, you don't want to climb down something that you might not be able to climb back up. So there's that, because you might come to an insurmountable obstacle, which uh, would require you to go in the reverse direction, and you want to make sure you can always make it back the same way you came. And then <laughs> step in the middle of things. There's a lot of rocks out there, and some of them are uh, big, and they seem that like if you step on any part of them, they will they won't move, but inevitably they might. So 
I think that's a good rule. You just step in the middle, and then if it does move, it's not going to make you fall. Mm. And you say you have a topographical map, but at a certain point, uh, it's it's almost next to useless. It, it is in this country because a topographical map normally has contour levels of um, 40 feet, but and they're all made from aerial photographs, so there's not a lot of detail, so to speak. And, you know, you can, you can use them for basically where you're going, but in terms of the, you know, on the ground, the next 150 feet or yards, you can't, the topographical map is useless. Mm. Uh, just a couple more questions on this. And this is, from the, again, from the point of view of, a, you might call me, a, you know, outdoors rookie, but uh, so you have a lot of experience, but so you didn't take a tent, um, and you're, I guess you just, you know, sleep bag, just sleeping out there. Uh, I don't know. Are there predators out there? Things you need to be worried about? Well, I think in that first walk in the book, I, I write about, um, mountain lion tracks and even maybe smelling one. So there was a little bit of a worry there, but I think I also have realized as so many people have that most critters, want less to do with you than you want to do with them. So um, I don't know if there, I don't think there's really a lot to be afraid of. And um, the, I mean, I think the main thing that I don't like sleeping out is when a bunch of stuff crawls on me in the middle of the night and um, nothing that would really hurt me, but it's just aggravating. And at that time of the year, there's not a whole lot out there that's crawling around. So I was, um, yeah, I didn't. I was comfortable, and plus, I had a little tarp. If it did start to rain, I could um, roll up inside that. Mm, but I was right. pretty sure there wasn't going to be, yeah. be any weather. Final question on this tangent. We'll get back into some of the things. But um, you, you know, you you said uh, first page. You you decided to head out. Tell your wife, I'm not back by Saturday. You might call for a search. Have you ever have you ever come close to that? Have you ever? Worried her to that extent, been been late enough that uh, she was tempted to call search. I don't think so. Um, that would be have that would have to be something she would answer. But uh, as far as I know, she's never said she got really close to, you know, calling for a search. It, when I used to be um, years ago, when I was serious about backcountry skiing, and I would go out after work, and sometimes I would come home late at night, but. I don't think she ever got so worried as to pick up the phone and or to think about picking up the phone and calling anyone. Mm-hmm. So I was always pretty reasonable about that, and it's always worked out. I, I mean, knock on wood. I've, I mean, it's so easy to think about how something serious could happen to you, and I think I mentioned in the second uh, walk that I bought one of these little. It looks like a cell phone, but it's uh, an emergency locator device that if you get into trouble, um, you push this button and it sends a signal to some satellite that sends a signal to um, search and rescue and they come find you based on your location. So I had that just in case. And, um, you know, so I felt, I felt pretty good, pretty safe. And I guess the you know the, one of the points of getting out in the wilderness is you know a lack of comfort, right? I mean, not necessarily putting yourself in danger per se, but but you know t- pushing yourself, testing yourself is that part of it? I think a little bit, but I also feel like you know suffering a little bit is not really the end idea, but it's sort of a means to the end. In other words. I couldn't have been out in that place without a certain amount of suffering, which I've grown used to. And, um, you know, I, I think I have a pretty broad comfort zone. In other words, I can be fairly uncomfortable and still pretty happy. Hmm. What is the end? What's the end goal? The end goal of... Of uh, being out in the wilderness, just, yeah. Just being out? Yeah. I think it changes. I think um, uh, there's a lot... Today, to suggest that the end is, um, you know, at, you know, some kind of high level of adrenaline. Um, there's 
so much out there now that you can see on the Internet of people who are doing the most extreme activities, um, putting them on Instagram and making a living at that. So for many, that's the end goal. Um, for me lately, and this, this has to do a lot with my age, is that I think just being out is the end in itself because you never know what's going to happen. And, it, and that can be, uh, you know, on a multi-day trip, which I do very seldom, but it also can be in a, an hour wandering around the perimeter of our property. Um, you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what um, bone you might find. You don't know what um, birds you might see. So the end is just being out is the end in and of itself. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to start the discussion after this break. Uh, you uh, you talk uh, in a poetic way about uh, silence. You say silence in the wild is not an absence but a presence. Um, I've experienced a bit of that. I wanted you to maybe expand on that. Also, I don't know if you have your book with you. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you could uh, you know pick a, a brief passage uh, to, to read when we come back. Um, okay. So uh, we were talking with uh, Brooke Williams. Uh, his he's author most recently. The new book is Mary Jane Wild. Uh, he documents his experiences in that place, the Mary Jane Wild, and his sense of what happened during the Trump presidency. Uh, he walked twice into uh, the Mary Jane Wilderness at the beginning of the Trump presidency and the four years later at the end. And uh, the result of this book. More following this break. A hard frost in October usually finishes off the productivity of most gardens in northern Utah and signals the time to put the garden to bed for the year. Due to erosion, tilling, muddy feet, harvesting, and many other factors, your garden loses some topsoil every year. Fall is the best time to add organic matter to your garden and build your soil for next year. Leaves, grass clippings, straw, compost, wood shavings, composted manures, they all improve your soil and add valuable nutrients but remember to use a variety of different materials. Spread two to four inches of organic matter over the entire garden, add some nitrogen, about four to six pounds per 1,000 square feet, some humate to boost the microorganism population, till it all in and watch the magic happen next spring. Support for The Garden Spot comes from Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Brooke Williams. Uh, he has spent the last 30 years advocating for wilderness. Uh, he's the author of four books, including Open Midnights and The Story of My Heart. Uh, that one written with, uh, co-written with his uh, wife, Terry Tempest Williams. Uh, his journalistic pieces have appeared in Outside, Huffington Post, Orion, and Salt Front. The new book is Mary Jane Wilderness, or Mary Jane Wild, rather. Uh, it's his sojourns in the Southern Utah's Mary Jane Wilderness. Uh, he took two walks. In fact, the subtitle, I think, is Two Walks and a Rant. Uh, he took a, a walk at the beginning of the Trump presidency and four years later at its end. And we're talking about that uh, on the program today. Um, so, Brooke Williams, I mentioned before the break, I want to have you talk about this. Let me just read this sentence uh, from the book. This is from the, the first walk. No sound makes its own sound. Silence in the wilds is not an absence, but a presence. And you want to take how, uh, talk about how you took mental notes about the different qualities of the silence in this wilderness. I wonder if you talk about that. That's very interesting. It's, it's not an absence, but a presence. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how to talk about it. I'm just, um, I've just, you know, throughout the years, living, especially living here, where, uh, and, and we mentioned, I mentioned earlier that we spend part of our time in Cambridge living in a, you know, apartment building um, above a busy street where there's absolutely never any silence. So here, there's extreme silence to the point where even a day or two after arriving here, it's hard to sleep because it's so quiet. But after a while, you start to realize that the silence isn't just nothing. There's something happening out there, and it, it may be a buzz, it may be some kind of a tone, it may be, um, you know, a slight breeze. It's hard to say often what, what that is. But even with, if there's nothing that you can identify, there's still something out there. 
And um, I, I think about that all the time because it's, it's really obvious when, when you can pay attention to it. And it's interesting, um, you know, Terry wrote about this in her, her recent book, and I mentioned it in mine, that um, some scientists put some um, electronic equipment on Castleton Tower, which is this 300-foot tower that's sort of the icon of the valley, um, a, a sandstone tower, and they're, they're doing research to determine what kind of uh, effects you know, civilization is having on these features, for instance, you know, overflights by helicopters and airplanes, et cetera. And they really determined that this tower is giving off a pulse. Um, so there's, the, the point is that I think there's a, there's a lot of life out there that we have no idea about, and yet we can sense it if we're open to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That's interesting. The, the tower is giving off a pulse. Yeah. Hmm, yeah. Um, this might be a good thing to a good time to bring this in. You um I think shortly after we t- talked about this, you know, you, you muse on silence. Uh, a moth comes and sits on your shoulder. Um <laughs> and and it's as it's cleaning its antennae with its front legs. It, say it wiped its eyes, flexed its wings. Uh, you mused I don't it. want you to give the people the impression <laughs> that I was bored or anything. <laughs> yes, that's that's right. <laughs> that's right. But you, you're out in the wilderness. You're by yourself, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, but let me ask you about that. You, um, you're not bored, are you? Out there? It's no, it, it, no. Yeah, there's always something. Even in even in that time of year when there's so little, and that was what was a surprise to me is that was the only living thing. Everything else is died or migrated or something. I mean, I did see some birds, um, a bird or two, mainly ravens, but at that point, that was it, that, that small moth. And when you see it, I, I didn't expect it, and it was a surprise that this moth is still here, still functioning. So, yeah. I guess that's an illustration of, uh, you know, if you're in the world, if you're, you know, in civilization, quote-unquote, uh, that moth wouldn't really have any significance at all for for most people a lot of people right you're out there exactly. and, and, and you ascribe a lot of significance let me just read this uh you muse well did it know it will die soon a moth has a short uh, lifespan um perhaps this one question rises above all others you write Do, does how i live my life support and free the force of other life or does it diminish it weigh it down extinguish it i guess this goes back to what you know the the monitor on the top of that tower right is our is our life, how is our life affecting the lives of others? Yeah, right. I think that's sort of a universal question that I hope everyone is asking is how I live my life, does it encourage other life or does it diminish it? I don't think there's a neutral place there. And um, I think we're all hypocrites. I don't care who we are in terms of how we live our lives and in terms of the damage that we're doing, the things we buy, the pollution that we create. So how to minimize that, um, I think, is our big question, especially now in these times of climate change. I think there's a lot of information out there to suggest that if um, everyone in America dramatically changed their lifestyle, we would have a much um, more positive future to face. So that's always something I think about out there, because the... Interesting thing about being out, especially on a multi-day trip, is how little you really require. And then you realize how much you need when you're back in the city and how much of that is extraneous and how much of it is being created in ways and using resources that might be better off used another way. I wonder, as a writer, what do you see your role? And I guess specifically, is there a, is there a political aspect to your role? I think sort of indirectly. Um, it, I think what's really, um, what I find fascinating is that I've, if I'm not writing, I don't feel alive. So I need to write regardless of whether I have something to write or not. And I think I would love it if people would read what I wrote and, and start to think about how um, they might be influenced by something I said. Um, like, you know, you brought up a couple of points about 
um, what it's like to be outdoors. And I, I feel like being outdoors has changed me in some certain ways, and my writing has helped me to understand and make sense of how I've changed. And I think that's possible with everyone. So if I can inspire people without preaching to them, I think some change may be possible, maybe even one or two people, but who knows? I, I think if I was to think about the impact my writing had, um, I would probably not write very much. Mm-hmm. It's more about me and making sense of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a passage that you'd like to read? Uh, yeah, I picked one only because I was thumbing through really fast. I kind of was panicked when you told me that. <laughs> yeah, sorry about um, that. So I mentioned that we're back in Cambridge, and there's a lot of smart people in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And um, a little background for this passage is that I went to a lecture a few years ago, and the lecturer was an author who had just written a book called The Disenchantment of the World. No, what was it? It had a different name than that. But it was about enchantment and disenchantment and reenchantment. And I, you know, I knew basically what the word enchantment meant, but I didn't realize a lot about it, and that's what this passage is about. Enchantment. The word suggests excitement, the extraordinary. As I hold onto the arms of my chair while careening through time and space, the world is unquestionably enchanted. Is purely extraordinary and exciting. My only experience with the word enchantment before being exposed to it as describing an entire epic of human existence was the song, Some Enchanted Evening. Before modernity marked the world's disenchantment, life was constantly enchanted. Enchantment was not extraordinary. It was ordinary. An enchanted life only seems unique and special in contrast with the disenchantment modernity forces on us requires to keep the system spinning along toward what seems more and more like a tragic end. That we refer to our pre-civilized and therefore evolutionary lives as enchanted suggests just how far from evolution we've strayed. As if this force, which is the source of life as we know it, has somehow become obsolete in the shadow of our great and powerful and devastating intelligence. Yeah, enchantment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that related to awe? You talk about awe in the book. Well. Yeah, it is, I think. I yeah. think that um, if, if, you're, if you realize that the world's enchantment, that chanted that is anything is possible, and there's a lot going on out there that you can't describe and that scientists haven't um, explained, then I think you're also open to the possibility of awe, um, I write about awe a lot. Um, I mentioned um, Dakar Keltner, who's a, um, a psychologist in Berkeley, who's written a lot about awe and has actually done some experimentation to sort of quantify the connection between experiencing awe and pro-social behavior, which to me is like a gigantic amazing thing to know is that if we experience awe, we are more likely to want to contribute to the greater good. So that to me is like a major thing to have learned over the past four or five years. Mm. You talk about, um, you make reference to Thomas Merton, and you, you say that many, several of his books have been important to you. What do you talk yeah. about that? You, you mentioned The Wisdom of the Desert as one book that's been important to you. Yeah, um, Thomas Merton, as most people know, is a, sort of a hermit uh, monk, and he wrote extensively and I think died way too young in, a, I think, a car accident, but left a lot of different books. And the one you mentioned, The Wisdom of the Desert, um, it's sort of a simple book in terms of its um, quotes from the Desert Fathers, and the Desert Fathers were these hermits that lived in the African deserts and um, the seeds of many modern religions came from those people. Um, the, the thing I really loved about the book, though, was Merton's uh, introduction. But what occurred to me is that the Desert Fathers, and as, as far as their quotes went, there was no real aesthetic about the desert. There was no real 
reference to what was going on around them. It was just the solitude and the absence that they needed. I think that uh, most of those Desert Fathers went out believing that the more they suffered, the closer they got to God, and the more likely they were to meet God if they were suffering. And suffering meant absence, suffering meant scarcity, suffering meant solitude. Um, So there was that. And I contrast that with what I've been learning about um, Chinese hermits who um, have written extensively also, but um, there's rarely a a phrase written by a Chinese hermit or poet, hermit-poet, that doesn't refer to the natural world. So their connection to the natural world is all about presence, where I felt like the Desert Fathers, it was more about absence. Does that make sense? Yes. And it occurs to me, as you were saying that, that uh, probably a fair number of people still today certainly was, you know, in the days of Manifest Destiny, um, who who subscribe subscribed to this idea of emptiness, right? Yeah, uh, absence. Yeah. Exactly, hoping that some some um, supernatural force from the heavens will fill that absence. Right. Uh, you you um. I want to loop this in right now. Uh, you talk about uh, you're talking with a uh, I think a Navajo. Holy man, I don't know if you phrase it that way. Jonah, Jonah, yeah, yeah, and uh, he. I'm trying to find this here. Um, he he talks about um, how uh, this idea of uh, sacred versus non sacred. I think so, sometimes, oh, okay. uh, um, yeah, in our civilization, think... maybe sometimes we we um, you know bifurcate the two. But he, I think he's saying that uh, you know there's uh, all land is sacred. I th- yeah, I think so, and I think uh, there's a quote in there from Wendell Berry who said there are sacred places and desacralized places. That that's all. There are those two, and um, the one thing that um, you remind me of when you mentioned Jonah, a yellow man who's um, a Navajo holy person who's become a close friend, is that the whole Bears Ears issue um, was so monumental, and um, it really turned me around, because I've been a conservationist for a long time, advocating for wild places mainly, but but mainly for the purpose of, you know, biodiversity and recreation and um, solitude. But when he injected for, for me and for all the people that were um, in our house at that time, the idea that these are sacred sacred lands. And I started to think about that, and um, it, it's added a whole dimension to my activism. Uh, a whole new dimension. Maybe expand on that. Well, it's that I grew up, you know, in the Mormon culture where the word sacred was used um, with uh, Joseph Smith and the sacred grove where he had the vision that was the seed for the Mormon religion. So that was the only really aspect of the sacred that I ever really thought about. But um, being around Native people, you get a sense that their whole life is um, defined and guided by these sacred places where, you know, thousands of generations of their ancestors have lived and where the, you know, the bones of their families are and that where they gather their food, and they have stories that go back generations and generations. You start to think about that in terms of um, people like us who, you know, most um, Americans, white Americans today have ancestors that came from Europe for one reason or another. And they they mainly came for economic reasons, um, and the idea of sacred and the enchant enchantment are related in terms of, you know, it's hard for a tree spirit to get by when you want to cut the tree down. So the idea of an enchanted world is that there are spirits in the trees, and the rocks and and the mountains all have spirits. And it's harder to think about 
doing some kind of damage to those just for economic purposes. And I think that's a, a real key to where we are these days. I mean, if you look at the climate, cha- our climate change, it goes back to the idea that we can pull oil and gas and coal out of the ground and burn it, and we can have an amazing economy that's based on that. Well, the result is that we have this climate impacted future that is maybe the most important and dangerous thing we've faced as a species. And that was a result of disenchantment. You know, when we started to see natural resources and the natural world as a commodity um, and started buying and selling it, that was disenchantment. So my theory is that if disenchantment is at the root of the problem that we're facing today, maybe re-enchantment is part of the solution. I want to go back uh, to just briefly, uh, have you retraced those steps? You, you, I was very fascinated with, with this uh, little passage. Uh, relating exactly what you were saying, you, you talk about white Euro-Americans, my ancestors, you say, um, when they left those lands, they disconnected their stories from their sacred places when they left them. Then when they got there, as you said, they, you feel like they created economies based on desecrating the sacred places of others. Um, uh, that's, that's interesting that, that perhaps they did had a connection to their, the stories to their, those places that they were, but they, when they left, they, 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 they disconnected. Yeah. Ah, thanks for bringing that up. That, that, to me, is something that's important because these days um, white people can get into trouble for appropriating the cultures of others, um, especially when it comes to these kinds of questions that you're asking and the kinds of things I was exploring in the book. But it, but it ha- makes sense that even those of us Europeans who live here in America now had connections to a native culture that we there are native Europeans from whom we come um, so we have that we have that in our past the difference is that we've disconnected from it for so long and have been um, convinced for so many years and by so many different sources that it's no it's not real and it doesn't exist and as a result I think we suffer so if we start to think about what that really means, what does being native to a place really mean, and what can we learn from native people, and what does this issue around barriers in particular have to teach us about that, and in terms of you know the reenchantment, maybe that's what it's all about. Maybe that's what we really need to learn is how native people have lived in one place for so long. Um, and how we can emulate some of the things that they know and learn from them. By the way, um, pulling back to the politics of this, what uh, where are you now? I guess I'm, uh, emotionally, and those those around you supported Bears Ears. It's up and down and back and forth, and uh, now we've landed on Biden administration restoring uh, the the original boundaries. Uh, where do you think this is going to go, and uh, what are your hopes? Well, my hopes are that it stays the way it is, but, you know, there's a lot of work to be done between now and some kind of concrete forever policy. I think it's going to be a while before um, we have some sort of an agreement um, in, you know, in government offices about how national monuments um, are, de- are declared and how they're supposed to function. Um, there's a lot of people in you know Utah, important people in Utah that I think are ready to go back to the courts and say that Biden shouldn't have been able to do this. So there's all that. Um, I think it's a matter of time, and who knows how long it's going to take. But I think at some point, uh, if we were to project ourselves into the future 50 years, we'd look back and go, it's so important that we protected these places, especially during these last days of the carbon industry um, that can be so devastating. So I just, I don't know, I just hope we get to a point where we understand the importance and we start to um, legislate 
um, permanence into these decisions. And then um, we start to, and I think part of that is understanding why, why they matter. I want to talk a bit about wilderness. Um, you have a sentence in the book. This is early in your first walk. You, uh, you're making camp, you, and you muse, this is wilderness, lowercase w, this is wilderness, uppercase w. Um, I guess talking about, you know, it's wilderness in a broad sense, and you're in the Mary Jane wilderness, right? Um, yeah, Mary Jane wilderness is actually a wilderness study area officially, but at some point, who knows, maybe it will, will be official wilderness. But I think those days are a, a, a bit out into the future now, the way politics are. But there is the, the idea of wilderness in itself, though. That's the, the little W, is that um, it's a place where, you know, a human is just visiting, and the natural forces are, you know, whirring all around you and not impacted by any sort of development or motor or, you know, distraction from civilization. But you think, uh, and I, you know, I can see the, the way you feel this, the, the, <laughs> the way things are deadlocked. Wilderness, big W, is maybe out in the future. I think so. I would hope not, but I think that realistically speaking, um, I, I love the work that Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance is doing, um, along with Grand Canyon Trust and many others, to make sure that these places are protected for such a day when there, there can be a new um, new legislation, and every year the you know America's Red Rock Wilderness Act is reintroduced, um, and at some point there'll be enough support to make it law. Let's take another break. Come back with our last segment with Brooke Williams. His latest book is called Mary Jane Wild. Uh, he walked twice into Southern Utah's Mary Jane Wilderness at the beginning of the Trump presidency, and four years later at its end. And uh, he uh, muses about the Trump presidency uh, and its uh, possible long-term effects. Also, this is a story of how walking in the wilderness heals and helps him identify and then adapt to changing modern conditions and understand the role wildness continues to play in the evolution of life. Uh, We'll have more with Brooke Williams following this break. The official story of what happened to Billy Joe Johnson. The Sears and Roebuck 12-gauge shotgun accidentally discharged. Is something the family never believed. I just felt like they were hiding a lot of stuff from us that wasn't adding up. We tracked down the doctor who performed the autopsy and asked some hard questions. Who wrote this? Is this a person who's trained at all in forensic pathology? On the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. America is about to witness the birth of an industry, one that will reshape where we get our power and who benefits, offshore wind energy. There is simply no reason why the blades for wind turbines can't be built in Pittsburgh instead of Beijing. I'm Annie Rupik. From APM and NHPR comes Windfall, a deep dive into a sea change on the horizon. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Brooke Williams. He's the author of several books, and uh, his latest one is Mary Jane Wild. That's out and available now. Um, he, in this book, walks twice into southern Utah's Mary Jane Wilderness near his home in Castle Valley, near Moab in uh, southern Utah, and uh, once at the beginning of the Trump presidency, and uh, again four years later at its end. And um, it's, it's about wilderness um, it's about how wildness continues to play uh, a part in the evolution of life, adapting to changing modern conditions, how walking in the wilderness heals, many other topics. Uh, the uh, book, again, is Mary Jane Wild. Author is Brooke Williams. Uh, so, Brooke Williams, I want to have you talk a little bit about your night work. This was fascinating uh, to me here. In other words, uh, you say it's as important as your day work. Day work, I guess, being your writing um, night work has to, has to do with your un, uh, unconscious mind. But before I have you talk about that, you just in passing talked about something I think a lot of us are dealing with almost on a daily basis. Let me just read this. Uh, you were driving to Cambridge after attending an inspiring climate rally at Colby College, during which Ed Abbey and others, considered heroic by many, were again outed for their misogynist and racist behavior. 
Again, I was feeling conflicted about Abby's bad behavior while acknowledging the positive role he's played in my life. So my question is, uh, with this parenthetical, uh, just an aside you, you put in here, how do you navigate that? How do I navigate that? Um, I think what we're talking about is the kind of cancel culture. And the way I navigate it is to think about who's being canceled. Um, first of all, are they alive or dead? And if they're alive, they're being canceled because they are acting in a certain way right now, and they're conscious about it. If they're dead, especially if they've been dead a while, my big question is then, and this would um, apply to Abby and a few others, my big question would be how would they be acting today based on how culture has changed? And mo most of the people that I sort of blanch when I hear they're being canceled, I feel like I need to ask that question. What, what would they be thinking today? And I have the confidence that they would have evolved as society has evolved and they wouldn't they wouldn't be acting the same way. So there's that. And I also feel like we really need to look at who they are and what they added to the discussion and so on before we cancel them. Because if you cancel them, if you, if you tell students that we're not going to talk about Henry Thoreau anymore and we're not going to talk about Ed, Ed Abbey and we're not going to talk about who you name, there's dozens, then what do, you, what do you lose by that? Because there was an amazing amount of information and creativity and talent that went into um, their, what, their life and what they did, whether it was write or paint or you name it. So that's, that's the question I have, is how they would be acting today if they were here. Oh, no, maybe talk about your night work. You, 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 night work happens in your unconscious uh, mind, I suppose. What, what, what is that? What's your night work? Well, I, th I would call my night work, yeah, anything in my unconscious, which, you know, which is dreaming. Um, I also feel like um, I really depend on what I call my morning mind. I don't know if you've experienced this, but there's those maybe half hour or hour before you're fully awake where all of a sudden you start to have things happening and occurring in your brain. And it's interesting how often I'll have an idea that comes from that part of the, the morning that ends up being important throughout the day. So there's, there's that. Um, and I think night work applies to not just night, the dark hours of night of sleep, but throughout the day, too, when... Um, I've sort of made a practice of uh, paying attention to what attracts my attention. And, I, you know, you mentioned that moth, for instance. I mean, on another day, if there were two people sitting there, that moth might not have tra attracted the other person's attention. And that other person may be attentive to something that didn't attract my attention. And I have this um, theory, it's not just mine, but I've learned about it from others, Carl Jung and a number of others, that those things that attract your attention are elements of your unconscious that are trying to be conscious that you need right now. Um, so that's part of it. Um, I, I, do a, I, I have a practice of active imagination where um, if I'm stuck writing, for instance, I will um, sort of create a little, I'll envision a story and I'll just follow it. Um, without having any idea where it's going. And often I'll come up with um, images and ideas and um, memories that I'm not sure where they came from, but they're important. So I think all that, that there's this other world out there that we've sort of been taught doesn't exist or to ignore that is very important. And I've come to really depend on it. We just have about uh, two or three minutes left in the conversation. I wanted to bring it back to, you know, what what wilderness does for you. you well, for one thing, you say much of the wilderness you explore nowadays is internal, and the best way to get there is through, you know, outer wilderness. Yeah, I think um, there's, a, there's a lot in the book about her hermits and um, 
there's um, a, there's a couple of writers that have really influenced me, especially during the pandemic. And one of them is a man named Bill Porter, who they call Red Pines, written many books. He's a tran- Chinese translator. He spent a lot of his life in in the in the China and the East. And um, he wrote a book years ago called The Road to Heaven, Encounters with Chinese Hermits. And I read that book, and it's, it's really matter-of-fact and play-by-play, and it's just him visiting these hermits in China and writing about their lives and what they think and how they live. And um, he's been a real source of information to me and inspiration because I really believe that hermits, in, a, in the traditional sense, are these people that chose to go live in the wilderness, chose scarcity and solitude, and for some reason were seen as being wise, as having a wisdom that those people who lived in civilization could benefit from. Um, So that's why hermits were sought out by pilgrims, because there was some information they needed. Well, Bill Porter talks about great hermits and small hermits, little hermits. And little hermits are people that need to be out in the wilderness all the time to have that kind of wisdom, to get that inspiration that that leads to that kind of wisdom, where a great hermit can be anywhere. So I think that's the goal, is what, what do I learn being out in the wilderness that I can somehow grow from and realize that I don't need to be out there to have this same kind of access to the greater world and to the life force. And in the meantime, you mentioned uh, you have some good experiences just out uh, on your property, I suppose. For the rest of us, you don't have to go in the wilderness, I suppose. Just get outside. Exactly. Just get outside. Just get outside. Exactly. Um, what's interesting is that um, in terms of, like you mentioned, the moth, and I'm real interested in you know natural history. And um, it started with, I think I, I was I was a, a field biologist in college, but um, Mary and Terry, we be, I became really interested in birds because she was such a fanatic bird watcher, and so I realized that it wasn't just about naming things and trying to understand the the ecosystem, but it was about particular individual creatures. And that's expanded now, and, and I realize that it's so important because I don't care where you go, you step outside and there's something there. There's something alive, and that perhaps there's something you can learn from that thing. And it doesn't matter where you are. And I think it's such a good practice to start to pay attention to, to what is just moving around and why and start to ask questions and look it up and start to learn about things. Well, we're at the end of our hour. Good place to end the conversation there. Brooke Williams' new book is called Mary Jane Wild. That's out and available now. Uh, and uh, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Brooke Williams. Tom, thank you, and thanks for all you do for us. Thank, thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.